0: Making Up Space is proudly supported by Cold Comfort, the ice cream of champions. Handcrafted with local, organic, fair trade, and recyclable ingredients right in the heart of Victoria. (coughs) Vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, and sugar-free options are available. Stop by the small, independent ice cream company with a conscience. Visit them online at www.coldcomfort.ca.
1: You're listening to Taking Up Space, a program highlighting conversations on feminism from an intersectional lens, and I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. This episode features conversations on intersectional feminism as a whole. As we wrap up this season of Taking Up Space, it's important to come back to the main theme of this program and get a better understanding of what encompasses all of these intersecting political stances. We're going to attempt to answer the question what is intersectional feminism? What is it? Our panelists for this episode are two academics who have spent their time researching topics and teaching topics encompassing intersectional feminism. All right, let's get started. Thank you both for joining me for this very important episode on intersectional feminism. This episode's panel includes Chowenis and Joanne Lee. Could we start by having you two introduce yourselves?
2: Well, my name's Dr. Joanne Lee, and I'm a professor here in gender studies at the University of Victoria. And uh, what brought me to intersectional feminism, my whole life I've lived intersectional feminism, at least since the age of 15 when I became politicized but yeah my whole life
3: <laughs> yeah i was thinking the same thing new um, channel my late grandfather is chachin upmit and uh, my mother is enoch i just said my name's i uh, and i'm new channel from the west coast of vancouver island what we know as vancouver island now and i come from both klaoquit and chaklaset nations They've amalgamated Cayucat and Chaklicit, but we're still a fiercely independent nation. <laughs> and I was thinking the exact same thing, Joanne, when, when I looked at that first uh, question. I stumbled on the term intersectional feminism because someone described me as living in that space. And so I was curious about that and had to... Uh, learn more about what that word meant and realize that yes, indeed, it's sort of a space that I've occupied for a long time. I think in some ways, um, we're born into it. And then we become sort of more aware and articulate it in different ways. So it's sort of something that I've picked up probably a lot more recently than anyone in this room.
1: Lovely. Thank you. So first off, Let's get your point of view on this topic. How do you understand intersectional feminism based on your own social location or experiences?
2: I think for me, I um, encountered that term first in theory. But in practice, I really saw it much more as anti-racist feminism, decolonizing feminism. So in theory... I see it as a conceptual tool of analysis. When I'm trying to figure something out, how power is working, I find intersectional feminism very powerful because if we're talking about sexism, there's always racism involved. When we talk about racism, there's always sexism involved. So, for example, sexualized violence, it's always racialized and sexualized violence even though you don't see it when you're coming from my social location, it's always there. And even when it's bracketed out in terms of the white dominant culture, it's there too. It's just that the way our society is structured, um, certain parts of people's identities are invisible to them and invisible in dominant discourses as well. So the term intersectional feminism comes for me from black feminist thought Mm hmm.
3: I would say that's where I picked it up from and was looking for ways to um, not wear the impacts of colonialism on my body and my mind and my sleep on my spirit and my being. I was born feet first. And I've continued to make sure that I didn't swallow the impacts of colonization. And that was one thing that helped me articulate and understand and work through and unravel how these things work. So it's always been that schools created space for me to build my vocabulary to articulate what's happening in my community and my family, etc. And I'll tell you kind of a funny story. I still can't commit to memory what that term means. I struggle with certain things because I would say that um, my late grandfather taught me to think about things in New Channel first, like my family fiercely told me, yes, that's the way it is in English. And how do we think what's New Channel's way of doing things? So I'm always sort of in that space. So um, I had applied to a job. Um, at a nonprofit feminist organization, and one of the questions was about intersectional feminism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I leaned over, um, as one of the first Indigenous people applying for the position, I leaned over and I said, can you please remind me (laughs) about (laughs) what that means? And they started unraveling the definition, and then I said, oh, that's me. That's me, which is why you've asked and opened the floor for me to apply for this (laughs) position and then when then the way i ended up sort of taking that up which i'm i want to say to other indigenous marginalized and marginalized women and two spirit and trans folks at the end of the interview they said do you have any questions for me and i said yes What supports do you have in place for me as an Indigenous woman who is new channeled from this island to support me in a work environment where you've had a limited number of Indigenous people working? And the jaws dropped and I made my point (laughs) because people often ask us how we're supposed to fit into their box. And my response is always, hmm, <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, let's think about that question differently. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Good point. Yes. <laughs> Good point. Well, for me, I don't think of intersectional feminism as an identity position. It's, for mm-hmm. me, no one is born intersectional. <laughs> right. You're born New child, north woman, right? You're yes. born in a location. You come from somewhere. That's you belong somewhere. And for, for all of us, that's who we are. Yeah. Not that we're fixed there. As we As we grow, we become more complicated. We have more attachments. We belong to more places. We have more relations. So identity is not fixed. So I don't see... Like, I really hope it doesn't become... This term doesn't become tied to identity politics cuz mm-hmm. i think it's bigger than that. It's it's a movement. Like the I don't know more movement is an intersectional feminist movement. Mm-hmm. It's a political ideology. It's about how power is distributed and making that visible. Mm-hmm. Until like i love the way bell hooks talks about white supremacist capitalist patriarchy all one word. Yes. Because it names the entire system that we're caught in. So it for me yeah, it's not about who I am. Right. It's about looking at the structure of this society that we've inherited. It was there for us, we
3: didn't choose to enter into it. Yes. Yes, yes, that's what I meant about being born into it. That's exactly it. And I do see that in my own community, too, the wrestling with these terms, the original wrestling with the term feminism and the ongoing, like, description. Did we have a word in our original languages for that? And I'm like, well, let's take a step back. No, there was no need for that because we had societies that were organized completely differently in relation to all beings, not just human beings, and so, right from the get go, things were very different. But the fact that I'm raising my children in a world where I have to prepare them every day to be able to face the impacts of colonialism, to face racism, sexism, and how to navigate those as they're putting on their backpack, putting in their homework, putting in their lunch every day. That's part of what I think of. And I know that folks that I talk to in my family also really wrestle with how this term is going to get taken up, that it isn't going to be about who you are exactly yeah Mm -hmm. yeah because that will automatically be resisted within indigenous communities for sure Mm -hmm. i
2: think we should actually pluralize this term and call it intersectional feminisms not feminism there isn't just one intersectional feminism but many and many of them are insurgent feminisms and resurgent feminisms (laughs) Uh, for example there's no feminism that i have discovered yet that really talks about my reality i'm still having to make that as i here I'm at the end of my career, and it hasn't happened, but I'm build, I'm a pioneer mm. in what I'm calling now North American Asian feminisms, and I pluralize that because Asia is an in- continent. It's an invention of the West, so my identity isn't as an Asian feminist, even though that is a term that's out there, and because it's out there, I'll use it, but I'll make it my own, yeah. but really, I'm Chinese-Canadian, but what's that? There isn't even one textbook called Chinese Canadian feminism.
3: Yeah. You know? There really isn't. Right.
2: So there are multiple feminisms and we haven't stopped inventing feminisms. Mm-hmm. You know, feminism is an active living thing and it comes out of our need for justice, our need for belonging, our our need for relationships. And if we don't see ourselves reflected in the language Even in the critical empowering language that is available to us at this point, we have to continue to do this work. I mean, the intellectual labor that is required to dismantle 500 years of colonization is immense. It requires all of us to work together Mm -hmm. to dismantle it. And there's not just one correct way. Mm -hmm. So we have to make room for all of our ways of producing new knowledge, Mm -hmm. of using the knowledge, of reflecting, critically reflecting on that knowledge that we've used, the kinds of practices that we develop. Mm -hmm. All of it has to be reflected on, but it has to be invented and produced. And then we have to work against the dominant knowledge system Mm -hmm. that feeds us and blinds us and erases our reality silences us so all of it's tremendous
3: amount of work that's so (laughs) true it makes me think of too what I've been thinking a lot about as I move into sort of more of an anti-stage of my life and that role becomes more important in my life I've been thinking a lot about you know the TRC calls to action and how universities are making these commitments to calls to action as they pertain to education And this sort of sense of, well, I mean, initially the sense of, okay, you know, some ears are, are open and there's some different kinds of feelings emerging. And then I worry about younger people not knowing the importance that actually right now we really need to buckle down even more with each other. We need to work together and we need to be really aware of the resistance that's out there. There is an article recently that came out sort of uh, talking about the new Indigenous Law Program at UVic. And we're going to see more articles where the you know Western institution and West, Western academic thought is going to hang on more tightly and not look at the irony of illegal occupation on Indigenous lands and so recently I've taken up talking about how we treat certain things and I'm talking about in institutions as sacred and not just like important but actually sacred and then the way the resistance to some of the changes that we're trying to make make are really present. I mean, you see it in the examples of the Tina Fontaine verdict and the Colton Bushy verdict. And uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to come to CFUV is to talk about that and to talk about an incident that happened to me yesterday, which is unfortunately, the experience of lots of marginalized folks and particularly Indigenous women. And it's where I'm working towards creating change in the Faculty of Education at UVic. And, you know, we're talking about residential school, Orange Shirt Day, we're creating events like that. And people start to think things are changing. And that's where the gap between education and everyday moments is really stark to me and really can create, and I think about students, I think about my relations, really create a deeper isolation and dissonance or disconnect from the work that I'm doing. So I went to a tire store locally in Victoria and was already prepared as a woman to uh, possibly not be treated as if I know what I'm talking about. So I had my tire measurements all written down and, I knew whether I had ABS breaks, et cetera. But anyways, I went into the shop and I ended up hearing uh, the F-bomb dropped in relation to Native women. I'm trying to be careful because we're being recorded, um, so I won't repeat exactly in detail. And I also don't want to cause further harm to anybody. However, uh, we also need to tell the truth because the burden of not telling the truth is kids who are ill-equipped to deal or know that they need to develop the tools or network of support having experienced things like this. So I was telling Joanne earlier that I, I started, at first I tried the strategy of talking to a business owner And once this, he started talking about Native women and Native men in a violent, sexualized violence context, I tried to tell him that I work with teachers, I work in the area of education. And then I remembered telling people over the years, I'm an instructor, you know, and I teach at the university. And just to get people to stop talking like that, too, because I recognize in this world that status sometimes means things to people like that. And I don't agree with it. Because in my culture, you're not supposed to brag, basically, down to it, you're not supposed to talk like that. So I've had to resist who I am to be able to get people to back off. And I really saw clearly in the face of this man that he looked past that, did not see. He had a story in his mind about Native women, which is a horrible story. It's the one that is tied to the national crisis of missing and murdered women. My niece is missing and we still don't know what happened to her. And so I ended up leaving. Of course, I didn't get tires. I found a way to say, I've got to go to work. And the reason why I was developing a strategy to leave is because I was cornered in this tiny store and I knew that I would be leered at. The person also started talking about me and talking in the same manner as they did about other Native women. It was, you know, like um, I was telling Joanne earlier, you you sort of like get through life when you're marginalized, sort of, I have a tattoo I put up with all kinds of comments, well, you know, you're not totally a native, are you? That looks more Mayan than it does new channels. I'm not sure where people became experts on native art all of a sudden at a coffee shop, but that happens to me often, and I've learned to say either, you know what, I don't want to talk, I'm just grabbing a cup of coffee, and I don't know you, or... I say for a minute, yeah, it's new channel. If it's a bone sword, it's a beheading sword. And usually people leave rapidly after I've said that. But you learn to develop your menu of like, these are things that I need to get to work. So I'm not going to let them totally disrupt me. And uh, additionally, I just want to say a shout out to CFUV. Because I also thought, okay, I don't, I had a friend text me and say, you know, uh, you should maybe tell the news because you don't want this to happen to another young Native woman going into the store, any Native woman going into the store. And so I said, yeah, and, you know, I've talked to CBC before, I've talked to other places before, and I contacted one place a mainstream media place locally. And I was received with I'm sorry, that happened to you. Was anyone there with you to witness? I'm not sure how we can spin this story. Because you had no one there to corroborate your story. And I understand that you're a credible witness because you work at the university and the work that you do. And so if you can think of a way to spin the story, call me back. And then I was horrified because it's wrong to say I'm a credible witness because my work at the university, I have relatives who are in between jobs. New channels have the highest rates of homelessness currently in Victoria. That does not mean they deserve to be talked to or spoken to like this? What, what do we mean by a credible witness? So I knew right away leaving that space that one of the first things I was bearing myself for was, oh, this is a discussion of racism. No one still wants to talk about it. No one wants to say, yeah, that's happening. I, in fact, heard somebody say, was that their messed up way of flirting with you? Well, no, that's also not what it was. I mean, that was an attempt to try to figure out what was happening, but it's about those people. So then when I called CFUV and I spoke with Katie, thank you, Katie, he responded with almost not being able to speak was shocked, was like really caring and said, I'm gonna figure out a way for you to be able to talk about this. And that's the kind of response, the, the belief, the genuine, I'm not gonna take up your story, I'm not gonna re-victimize you or make you like you're too small. Thank you for being willing to come
1: forward with it. Um, Amazing. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we will delve even further into this great discussion on intersectional feminism. Up next, CFUV's production team explains the textbook definition of intersectional feminism. That's next, stay tuned.
0: taking up space we've been taking you through key topics and issues relating to intersectional feminism. But what is intersectional feminism really? And where does it come from? The term intersectional feminism was introduced by black law scholar and critical race theorist Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. However, it's commonly agreed that the concept of intersectionality had already been circulating in black feminist groups prior to that, such as the Combahee River Collective. Black feminist activists and scholars used this term to describe the ways that their experiences were not being addressed by mainstream feminist movements. Crenshaw says that the problem of exclusion cannot be solved simply by including black women in an already established analytical structure. Because the intersectional experience is greater than the sum of racism and sexism, any analysis that does not take intersectionality into account cannot sufficiently address the particular manner in which black women are subordinated. This spurred a need to account for multiple grounds of identity when considering how the social world is constructed. So intersectional feminism should account for the ways that systems and experiences of oppression are interconnected and cannot be examined in isolation from each other it argues that there's no one single universal experience of womanhood or sexism. This is because systems of oppression sexism, colonialism, racism, classism, capitalism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, ageism, xenophobia and so much more overlap and co-construct the worlds that we live in. Without intersectionality, Many people's experiences of oppression are erased and go unaddressed, effectively reproducing the very structures that we're working against and allowing those with the most privilege to have the loudest voice. For example, even if all women deal with sexism, not all women deal with racialized sexism or transmisogyny or cissexism. If we want to fight and work against the systems that oppress women and gender marginalized folks, then we must address all the systems that are oppressing all women and gender marginalized folks. In the words of black feminist, lesbian poet and activist, Audre Lorde, I am not free while any woman is unfree, even when her shackles are very different from my own. Here is what Kat Stark has to say about it.
4: My name is Kat Stark. I'm a sessional instructor at Uvic. This is my third year teaching in multiple departments. I'm a white cis woman. Um, for me, intersectional feminism means equity. It means justice, inclusivity, respect, and a practice of holding space, building trust, and collaborating not only despite, but because of all of our differences. It is based on a deep sense of respect for human rights and human dignity. Um, It is also rooted um, in a solution-based approach, which I teach in all my courses, um, an approach that requires taking responsibility to be part of the solution rather than merely point out the problems. As a sessional instructor, I am in a precarious um, job position, so I do not have financial security. I get paid per course that I teach. But the upside of all of this exploitative labor practice is that I get to teach many different in many different departments in the Faculty of Humanities. And I can design each course as a social justice course with a feminist perspective. So I'm also a feminist organizer and um, have been organizing intersectional discussion panels uh, for a few years now. This January, um, my co-organizer Kayla Noman and I led the planning on uh, the Women's March in Victoria. We took all the criticism about last year's rally in support of the Women's March on Washington very, very seriously. We made sure that it was truly inclusive and intersectional. We wanted to empower women, but to us, that also meant empowering trans people, indigenous communities, people of color, immigrants, refugees, Muslim people, as well as empowering men and boys. We see all these struggles um, for justice um, as connected and interdependent. I edited and launched the anthology of social justice and intersectional feminisms um, with work by UVic graduate and undergraduate students and a few faculty members. And that was a way of bringing um, intersectional conversations outside of the university community, outside of this kind of educated elite where you have access to these books and this knowledge and this vocabulary and this language and making it accessible to the widest community possible. It is intersectional in all its efforts um, to present academic research essays, personal reflections, poetry, um, artworks and, and photography so that we create a conversation about what social justice means today this idea of understanding intersections of justice and human rights and human dignity really and human creativity as well and um, having a conversation about it and really pointing out how interconnected all these conversations are and all these struggles are. Once we kind of all really understand how connected we are, how connected the struggles are, how connected everyone's right and um, desire and need for dignity for justice is um, it's really amazing what you can accomplish in, in a collaborative spirit and I have I've seen this in, in a few projects but once people come together and they're already on the same page whether it is my colleagues who organized the women's march with me, whether it is um, everyone who contributed to the so- social justice anthology Um, Again, like uh, the students that I see do amazing work on campus. Once you kind of like bring the people together who have a common goal, it's so powerful to see what kinds of things can be done and how much change can actually be accomplished. And so I think the future um, goal for me and for my colleagues is really to create spaces, create opportunities, create these projects where people who believe in this, who, who, who believe in investing their time into making change, into generating change, when you bring them together and you give them tools and you give them projects um, and see what can be possible, it's quite amazing and it's quite powerful and empowering.
0: Break free from boring ice cream with Cold Comfort. Cold Comfort is a small, independent ice cream company right here in Victoria, with over 400 different handcrafted ice cream flavours inspired by everything from local fruit to local beer. Curiously flavoured and locally made, they've been doing whatever the hell they feel like since 2010. Head on down and treat your taste buds today. Check them out at www.coldcomfort.ca
1: Welcome back to Taking Up Space. I'm your host Anne Bernice Thomas. This episode features conversations on intersectional feminism as a whole and I'm joined by Chawinness and Joanne Lee. So how has intersectional feminism shaped your understanding of social justice issues?
2: I live my life intersectionally and every day I have to unpack what that really means and when I connected with you again, Chaiwanis. And you told me the story. Just like that, I could relate. Because it's happened to me. Yes. You know, it goes... This is the thing is that we need to share our stories of everyday racism in Victoria. And we don't have venues like uh, CFUV Mm -hmm. to share these stories and so that other listeners can say, oh, I'm not alone. Yes. Uh, We live in this dominant white society often alienated from others like ourselves, but even to ourselves. So when we, because we've learned that we have to, as you said, we have to make our way in the world and we have to make our way in this racist, sexist society. It still is a heterosexist, misogynist society. It's also still very racist. And minority women are at the center of those negative attitudes, mm-hmm. we're gonna get it. We're on the front line of that. Yes. And in order to get through the day, every day, we have to put our blinders on. And we have to learn how to be polite to those offenses because we know that if we take those on, if we address them and ask the people to be accountable, for their behavior, we'll never get through the day. Even as a professor, as senior as I am, it doesn't protect me. Exactly. You cannot expect your class position in that you work hard to get, Mm you know, because you're uplifting your community, not just yourself, right? Yes. You work hard, you're committed to, to that and you've got to see the larger picture you constantly have to see the larger picture you have to be there for your children you have to be there for your family you have to be there for your community Mm -hmm. so you can't allow yourself to be distracted from the larger goal so there's lots of reasons interpersonal reasons but social reasons why we don't name a lot of the things that happen to us,
3: mm-hmm. but the
2: story you tell is a perfect example of intersectionality.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That situation, really, when you begin to unpack it, you know, if you were a white woman going in there, mm-hmm. right, would that man start mouthing off about Native women with to a white woman?
3: No, no, he would
2: hold his tongue. It was because of who you were,
3: yes, right,
2: exactly, and and that. You are a very attractive woman, so he's sexist there. Yes, exactly. But you're not white. Yes. Right? So there we have racism, sexism, classism. You've learned to pull rank just to protect you, right? Yes, exactly. So you're going to, if something doesn't feel right, you're going to say, hang on, I'm just not like everyone else that you think I am. I actually have some credentials here but that didn't protect you it doesn't protect me no it, it doesn't even if i pull out the phd it yeah. doesn't protect me i've been mistaken for a nanny from the philippines i've been mistaken for a prostitute mm-hmm. you know you know same
3: exactly <laughs> you know, the it same. It, yes. so
2: so in that sense you see to understand our that situation you have to bring racialized violence in and sexualized violence there. They are working together here, right? Mm -hmm. And as you say, if you are homeless, Mm -hmm. if you don't present well, there's classism there. So, you know, in that particular situation, to understand the depth and the complexity of that context, you have to bring an intersectional feminist analysis to bear. But white intersectional feminist analysis is still not enough, nor is black intersectional feminist analysis enough as an indigenous person you also have to bring decolonizing intersection because because it's on this territory your own territory that you have to live this offense Mm -hmm. right how do you explain that you can only explain it by settlers moving in stealing the land yes right and telling you to get off the land, to live on reserve, and not only that, that you're ignorant. Yes. That the original offense still lives today, exactly. 500 d- years later. So, <laughs> exactly. you know, that's what I was saying at the outset. We have to invent, we have to build, we have to make our own feminism. For myself, I come from the three generations of Being on this land, Mm -hmm. and it's my work that I have to figure out the non-white settler, the Chinese Canadian settler relations to Indigenous peoples. That work has not yet started. Really, Mm -hmm. we're just getting going on it. That's true. We're just on both sides. Yes, yes, on both sides. On both sides, we have to recover our hidden histories of relations, good and bad. And there were good relations. Yes, I have people are married into First Nations communities on the coast. Yeah, I've had stories where communities realize their bloodline is dying off and they have given permission Yeah, uh, for women to marry Chinese men to continue the bloodline. Mm-hmm. The Chinese old bachelor men married yep. indigenous women because they were denied possibilities of bringing families over. Mm-hmm. And so There is a family connection here, but we haven't talked about it. We
3: haven't talked about it. Yes, I'm super excited that we're talking about that. And I also think if we're going to talk about what's happened in this country, that the most interesting conversations are these types of conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, Verx had... Uh, started I think it was two years ago a conversation between newcomer folks and indigenous folks mm-hmm. and they ended up organizing really small and of course it wasn't like a large event a small event where there were different ages of indigenous people locally and actually the majority of folks were Chinese Canadians and they came together, I think they watched that film, Mm -hmm. and they created, I, I think they may have created an art piece together, but they came together to have a conversation about, you know, for Indigenous people talking about what their history was, and for the Chinese Canadian folks to understand that history because it was also really hidden and then I think they shared food etc yeah Yeah. yeah. so it's like we need to to make sure that those conversations are happening more because it's actually a truer telling of how this place came to be and Uh, and then we it's more interesting than the one story we're always told (laughs) (laughs) right
2: absolutely I agree with you 100% and in fact in my own community we haven't done enough and our elders are dying my uncle just turned 99, wow. and only this year has there been any information about this Force 136 that was recruited from the Chinese-Canadian community to towards the end of the Second World War. And they were recruited because uh, the British thought that they could infiltrate into Burma and fight the guerrilla war in Burma. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time they were trained and were sent overseas and were s- going to be sent into into the jungles armistice was declared what happened was that the Canadian government signed a secret agreement with the French government to send these this troop because they could pass as Asian um into into, to fight um an anti-colonial war in Vietnam Indochina right right but my uncle and his group uh, mutinied and they said no way we're not going to go into Vietnam to fight for the French we signed up to fight for the allied forces because what they wanted was the right to vote and they thought if they went to war they volunteered to sign up they would get the vote so um, they burned down their huts but uh, as and then they were they they refused to go and and we didn't know anything about this exactly. because it was hushed up. Yes. And it's only now that the story is being told. And at 99, my uncle is one of the few still conscious, you know, still yes. kind of um, together guy who could tell the story in a coherent way. And so he's being celebrated by the Chinese-Canadian War mi- Military Museum. But the fact that there are many, many stories like this, exactly. that it's not that you know, it's unimportant. It's that it's been deliberately erased. My own story about Strathcona and the um, Urban Renewal Renewal Program, that story really hasn't been told. I ought to be writing it, but I'm too preoccupied doing all my other activism stuff. But there's so much. And as I was just going to say, that what I would dearly love to see is that the elders from these communities could mm-hmm. get that there would be a larger elder circle mm-hmm. where these stories could be shared so that we can actually retell the stories. Yes. In all its complexity. Yes. And that the white settler indigenous narrative, which is. The dominant colonial narrative that exists today is too partial it is and it just replays the binary yes it did we don't want the binary no we don't we want, want intersectional
1: it. yes <laughs> multiplicity <laughs> yes exactly that's exactly it <laughs> yeah totally you both have embraced intersectional feminism in your life and your work so why do you think um, so many feminist advocates are resistant to making feminism more intersectional? Well,
2: I have a theory around, <laughs> which I draw on Frantz Fanon and yeah. Roland Barthes and Sheila Sandoval. Chela uh, Sandoval has written a very interesting article on methodologies of the oppressed in which she used Roland Barthes and Fanon to talk about the kinds of ways in which people from the majority culture protect themselves discursively and psychically through disavowal and denial because they are experiencing a form of trauma. They don't know the history. They've been told a story where they've been told that they are the best, the brightest, they are good people. So when confronted with a story that contests that sense of who they are, they become very destabilized, they get decentered. And it is a form of trauma when you lose that sense of who you were, who you thought you were. And um, there's a fear of difference. And that fear of difference is is structured it's not just something inside it's just not a weakness inside you you know it's it's that edward saeed talks about the colonized archive of knowledge so that everything that you've been taught i'm talking about majority people and minority people i went through this education system too so we all bear the scars of that and um i think a lot of the ways in which white people have been taught is to Whiteness is the absent center. It's become normalized. Mm -hmm. It's common sense. So you don't even have to question it. Whiteness is not made strange. It's a very comfortable place to be. I know I've had to learn how to think white, be white speak white in order to survive so i am as white as anybody else so what we have to do is i think people from the majority culture by white i'm just using it as a shorthand for a cultural formation that originates in europe you know it's it's a it's a legacy of european colonization and i i do think that why dominant culture it's a refusal it's it's a discomfort it's easier just to center what you know so you don't have to if you're heterosexual you don't have to think about people who have other sexual preferences if you're cisgendered you don't have to think about any other kinds of ways of being gendered if you're white you don't have to think about racial difference or ethnic difference or cultural difference or linguistic difference you just every everything that you see in the world how you relate to the world is through the lens of rose-colored glasses And I think that the effort to take off those glasses, it's a huge effort. It's Mm -hmm. a small effort, but it's huge, historically speaking. And I think that's the work that white feminists and white allies, white social justice workers, social justice organizations that attempt to do... um, anti-oppression work, this is the work that they have to do themselves. They have to find ways to do this work in ways that don't recenter whiteness, that doesn't take all the energy up, all the resources, because that's just more white navel-gazing. And I've been through a lot of that. I've been involved in many national women's organizations, provincial organizations. The amount of energy that it has sapped out of me (coughs) in trying to get them to shift and change You know, that's not our work to do. The work Mm -hmm. that really would restore me
3: and to energize me is the work that Joannis and I have just talked about. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You know, and it makes me think of uh, the couple of folks that are uh, like Paulette Regan's book she wrote a while ago on settling the settler within. So wrestling with that discomfort of like turning your eyeballs inward. Every time I think of Fanon, I think of somebody um, from white society's eyeballs rolling back and having to Mm -hmm. look back inside at all. I know a couple of folks, uh, Emma and Adam, uh, Emma Battelle, they just wrote a book on settler colonialism. And so they're wrestling with that discomfort and came a lot through sticking it through and having uncomfortable conversations. So, for example, it also takes non-Indigenous folks to be able to or non-marginalized folks, white people, to be able to also not try to fit us in the box. So when there's the moment of discomfort, don't go running to look for another marginalized person who's going to say something that you feel is more fitting, because it's often done in a highly manipulative way, where those two marginalized folks have no idea what's happened. I've had that experience, even with something as simple as asking my advisement about elders, for example. So then I find out that a person, oh, I need. We, we're this organization we want to work with an elder. And I found out that they've lined up a few Native folks to find out which elder to use. And you know, jo, you know how it works in our communities too. Like we're not gonna, I'm careful about that. Mm-hmm. I don't, maybe this person is more local than me. And so I would defer to them mm-hmm. and so, I've been in a position where I've said, no, I've heard that you're going through this person and I defer to that person. That's your best bet. And I'm not going to do that. Or expecting like this McDonald's culture we live in where we expect these relationships to happen instantly because we've now either got a reputation for being diverse or we've it's now mandated that we have to follow the trc or we have to weave the curriculum with indigenous ways of being and knowing and now we've got that but that can't be the reason people really have to search what their reason is for doing this work because it is uncomfortable it is it's it's You know, you can't have done this stuff for 500 years and expect it to be smooth sailing and all of a sudden everyone to be getting along and figuring it out. And then with certain things, don't expect people to wrap it up in your language in the way you would do it. People are allowed to be angry. People are allowed to be hurt. People are allowed, and in fact, most of our cultures, we know that it makes you sick if you hold that stuff in. So half of me is like, you know, it's not rocket science, but it's also recognizing that it is really uncomfortable. And um, yeah. But it can't be, um,
2: we've talked about it in in my class, um, it can't be an inoculation. It can't be just enough so that you think you've done it, yes. and so that it protects you from any accusation that somehow you're not doing the right thing. Because what white people really want most of all is to be returned to their goodness. You know. Yes. Um, I think the, the piece of advice that I would give to um, people who are really sincerely trying to change and to really look at how they might be implicated in all of this. And this is where you start from. You have to accept that you are implicated. You are part of the situation. There's this whole discourse around allyship with all sorts of checklists and recipes for (laughs) how to be a good ally. And, you know, I think, you know, who invented this subject position of the ally i think it stinks <laughs> you have if you don't see yourself as part of the problem if you can't figure out how to move from a position of allyship the person who stands outside and bears witness to the person who is co-implicated from the place of radical love you shouldn't be doing this work you should still be going back into the closet to do the reading to do the self self <laughs> you know exploration to figure out where how can you enter into this work in an authentic true way mm-hmm. you if you, if you cannot see yourself reaching out and holding hands and truly overcoming the difference by looking at what do we share in common what is our shared vision if that's not the place you're coming from you're just tokenizing you're appropriating you're just taking care of yourself again
1: okay listeners we're going to take a quick break and then after that we'll wrap up this amazing conversation on intersectional feminism Up next, you'll hear some poetry from Anne Bernice Thomas. That's me. So stay tuned for that. It's coming up next. This poem is called Tamir E. Rice. My friends tell me that I don't cry enough. But I keep my emotions bottled up behind Guinness eyes and a white wine smile. They they say that if they didn't know me, they'd say I was 90% alcohol, 5% denial, and 5% bad choices that make great stories. They say that if I don't let it out now, it would explode one day, A light smattering of rain would send into a 10-ton hurricane out to destroy me, the general vicinity, and most of BC. To this day, I can count the number of times I've cried on my two hands, six, two were about me, five were about death, three affected me personally, and one is from the news. November 23rd, 2014, Saturday a boy, 12 years old shot and killed by a police officer, a black boy, 12 years old shot and killed by a white police officer, a 12 year old black boy armed with a fake BB gun killed by a white police officer armed with a real Glock gun, no matter how I phrase it, I just can't make it make sense to me he was 12, twice the amount of times I've cried less than half my brother's lifetime he was a child playing in shoes too big to fit him living a life too short to hold him standing in the eye of a hurricane that's been turning for much longer than any of us have been alive for it took me three articles to find his name tamir e rice and each time i read it Each time I say it, I can't help but think about who gave it to him, who birthed him, who reached into the stars and made their own little universe wrapped in brown skin and prenatal racism. I can't help but think about his mother and how many times she cries and will cry. If the weight of this crime will push on the tear ducts of her eyes for the rest of her life, I want to hold her and hold her. And hold her until she can't be held any longer. And I want to cry with her until she tells me that her well has gone dry and she has nothing left to give this world who already took her child. I want to burst like a storm cloud on scorched earth and let the hurricane in me destroy me, the general vicinity, and most of BC. I am so angry. But my friends, they tell me that I don't cry enough. And they tell me that they can't wait for the day that I do, so I tell them the truth. I was born with tears in my eyes because being black is a defiance act that we pay for in blood and we cry in the hopes that the hurricane inside of us wash the blood off the streets so that a mother will never have to bury another son because they were defeated by a system that flourishes and now rain. And I tell them that I live for the day when I don't see through tear welled eyes because this well finally has a reason to go dry. I would consider myself a wild woman, a loud woman, a breaking sound barriers to scream through clouds. Woman, my father said that I am more thunder than lightning, more calculating than frightening. Slow burn, rumble to cloudburst, shattering, I've been told, but I am intimidating been shown, but I am intimidating. Seen more backs fleeing from me in desperate self-preservation acts of mercy. I look like I eat men. I do eat men. Well, I would if given a chance, but survival follows them like clouds waiting to boom open. I'm spread open rarely. That's a wild woman thing, see? Looking so tasty, but sharing myself seldom. I've got mollusks for skin, and my spine will never forgive me. But clouds won't burst until Wild Woman is free. See, my grandmother told my mother to be careful with your daughter. She will do whatever she wants to no matter what you say. So Wild Woman knows fear of being uncontrollable. Whiplash chains, burning feet in place, scorching so sweet she searched for wisdom, hunted for peace, strove forward and learned that fear is an accident. But staying afraid is a choice that rears its ugly head. So, Wild Woman tamed that beast and Old Woman's too. And Old Woman lowered her leash just enough for Wild Woman to learn how to touch her toe. She's always wanted to learn how to do the splits. But, Wild Woman doesn't have time for this. Cause Wild Woman is on the prowl, and Wild Woman learned how to pick her battles, but it doesn't mean she's very good at it, so howls follow her charred footsteps now, follow my charred footsteps now, sometimes wish that I didn't tread so lightly, walk so carefully. I want to feel my weight and my feet and my heels and toes and a rock in the wind and root myself in the soil and the places that I'm supposed to be, but Wild Woman is wandering, is hungry, 19 years of starving and fighting, lightning old woman turns child into mother, quickly searching for the next meal to fulfill her belly, Wild Woman wants to be full of herself rightly justly insatiable wild woman is waiting for you to stop running so she can be full of you men wild woman was born taking up space and stopped apologizing for it when wild turned from noun to verb and she learned that actions speak louder than words so she turned her head to the heavens and how old i am am so hungry, and their words finally burst storm clouds to scorch the earth rumbling platitudes I can taste on my gums, but they are empty. So wild woman hunts, because she is free, she is starving, and there is nothing that can stop her now. Welcome back to Ticking Up Space. I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. In this episode, we talk about intersexual feminism in activist spaces, and I'm joined by Chowinness and Joanne Lee. Okay, so now that we've talked about the pros and cons of intersexual feminism and how you've seeing intersectional feminism embraced in your work and in your activist spaces. Where do you hope uh, this type of feminism will take us as feminist advocates and as a community?
2: Well, we have a new global reality. So uh, we will use intersectional feminism as one of our firm rocks to step across, but it's just one. And so we need to think globally and locally at the same time. Yes. Uh, we have to think across borders. If we thought it was challenging to learn about indigenous peoples, which are very complex in and of themselves, mm-hmm. in terms of dominant culture and new, old th- re- realities, the com- the world is far more complex than today. And so what's ahead of us is greater complexity. And intersectional feminisms is one touchstone. There's transnational feminisms that are being created and transnational solidarities and global indigeneity. Indigenous is not just local, it's everywhere. So it's that whole language around settler colonial relations is going to be busting apart too, yes, fracturing mm. into many more pieces i mean it's we're launching into you know deep space (laughs) almost (laughs) like it's there's much more to come yeah
3: yeah that part really excites me i can even feel my body feels all happy and hearing you talk about that um i'm part of a coastal women's governance council And uh, one of my elders is Jerry Ambers, who's Kwakwala. And although she's not New Channel, she's been a very important part of my life for a long time. She said exactly what you said. She talked about the importance of local people and local knowledge with medicine, plants, healing, all those things, and that they belong to a group of people globally. It's like a highway of people and that we need, as this governance council, which we're pretty tiny at the moment, but we need to... Ensure that uh, we're aware of and learning about who those people are, and start building that network again. It's been there, but over time, with some of the you know impacts of treaty making, um, the impact of education on our, on our communities, et cetera. The fracturing has happened as it always has, but then there's always this effort to pull people back together. I think that we've talked in the past about unity and it's been a difficult, like uh, almost pit in your stomach feeling with some of the fracturing within communities, but that there's a sense of uh, needing
1: that That is a great wrapping-up point. So that concludes our conversation for this episode. Thank you very much to Shamanis and Joanne for coming in to speak with us today. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Taking Up Space. Rate us, leave us a comment, or review the show at www.cfuvpodcast.com or wherever else you get your podcasts. This program was produced by myself, Alba Clevenger, and Max Collins. Our theme music is composed by Arcade Pout. This episode was created by CFUV's production team. If you want to be a part of making amazing programs like this one, head to CFUV.ca to learn more. Taking Up Space wouldn't be possible without the generous support of our friends at Cold Comfort and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. I'm Anne Bernice Thomas. This is Taking Up Space and we will catch you next time.
0: Cold Comfort is an ice cream store with a conscience. Crafted by ethically paid employees using local, organic, fair trade, and natural ingredients, Cold Comfort offers high-quality, guilt-free ice cream. Ice cream is for everyone. They make dairy-free, vegan, and sugar-free options, as well as gluten-free ice cream sandwiches. Now that's some ice cream I can get behind. Find out more at www.coldcomfort.co.